And welcome to the next episode of Cowgirls and Indians. I am the cowgirl, Christina Cook. And I am the Indian, Keith Nobles. <laughs> and uh, we're here to, we're trying to, to help you develop a framework, you know, help our listeners develop a framework for understanding, you know, really the, the left and, and kind of their tactics and, and their history and how all the stuff that they do, which seems so completely nonsensical, fits into that framework because there is a method to their madness and you can see it going back through history, right? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Well, we're going to examine a piece of that history that is obviously near and dear to your heart, um, near and dear to ours because it's part of the name of the podcast. (laughs) We wanted to go back and and, uh, Keith, you are an expert on Indian history. I mean, really in in the United States. Tell us a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. Well, here's what we're going to be talking about. Most of what people understand about Indians, including what that word means, right, is uh, not very accurate or true. Okay. And mostly what they understand they get from fiction, novels, television, movies. The and how this are. actually came down to get us to where we are today is not something they're aware of. So I've, I've done a pretty fair amount of public speaking on this topic. Okay. And almost always, it's been to Indians. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Indians, by and large, mostly know this stuff already. So the target audience needs to be people who don't know this stuff. Right. Because there's a great perception among the citizens and enrolled members of these Indian nations mm-hmm. that you know, 95% of America has no idea what happened. And they just assume because they watched Westerns or they watched Yellowstone or they read Last of the Mohicans that they understand what Indians are. Right. How they got here. Right. What has happened? And uh, almost none of that is is true. That's in popular media. And that's been true since the 1820s. Really? Yeah. That far back? Oh, yeah. James Fenimore Cooper. Okay. In 1824, I believe, wrote Last of the Mohicans. Okay. And it's an excellent novel. I'm not saying it's not a great novel. But he started a trend that we have with us today that so few people really understand anything about Indians, know any of the actual history, that use Indians as a blank canvas for a plot device. <laughs> it's true. And that's exactly what has happened over these 200 years. Right. So did Finnemore know an Indian or not? Some people think he knew a Delaware. Regardless, he used us as a blank canvas for, for plot devices. And that's what has continued on since then. Well, and, and I guess, you know, if we think about why it's important to know this stuff, because the left uses Indians as plot devices for, you know, well, pushing all sorts, yeah. pushing all sorts of uh, lots, narratives. Lots of people use us as plot devices. <laughs> I'm, but, thinking, but, I'm thinking in particular the, the elimination of the Washington Redskins um, oh. and how that, I mean, that there was a black chief or a Blackfoot chief who drew that yes. logo, right? I mean, yes. it had the approval of the, of the Blackfoot nation. Yes. And the white liberals came along and decided that's offensive to Indians because they don't even know how to define one, right? Well, yeah, they don't know how to define one. And, you know, the problem here with all of this is just the perception most people have. And why do we study history? We study history so we can learn. Okay. And, and you learn from history, what was a good idea? What was a bad idea? Hopefully you learn that. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How, how these, what were the consequences of, of these decisions that were made? And so many things that the Indian nations experienced over the last 200 years are now being done to the American population as a whole. The other, Fair enough, the other yeah. 98% of Americans can learn a lot yeah. from not going down the same road they took us. And from understanding who they were that were well, taking you down that road. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and, well, and really why? Because really this episode, in the next episode where I'll be talking about this, and this is really the story of abandoning the Constitution, abandoning the principles of the Constitution, mm-hmm. and adopting whatever idea comes down the pike next. Bad idea after bad idea after bad idea after bad idea. Right. And, and government trying to remedy the previous bad idea with the next bad idea. Right. I mean, that's really... Well, they're always purporting to have the solutions for the problems that they caused. So why yeah. not? You know? Yeah. yeah. But, <laughs> so. but there's so much to be learned here by Americans as a whole. Sure. Because so many bad ideas in regard to government, the government relationship to the Indian nations. Mm-hmm. So, so, yeah. so much to know. As you mentioned, we're going to be doing this actually over two episodes. You know, we, we wanted to we wanted to get the full story 
out there. And and you you in particular have such a depth of knowledge of all this stuff. You sent me some notes on on this and then sat down and said, oh, by the way, I've added to that it's like, you know, already six or seven pages long. So well, there's a lot to be said and yeah. a lot to be explored. And so so we are we're going to cover this over a couple of episodes. And uh, so, you know, we hope that you'll stick with us through all this, please. So let's start with the basics. Help me define an Indian. What is an Indian? An Indian is a legal status derived from Article One of the Constitution. Okay. And the United States federal government determines if you are an Indian or not. That's all it is. It is not a race. It is not an ethnicity. It is not a culture. Okay. It is simply a legal status. And that legal status has, even today, a lot of ramifications. Really? Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> okay. And those ramifications, this is part of what causes people to fail to grasp all this. Okay. Those ramifications are by nation by nation. So they it's not the same. Blanket. It's nothing about this is uniform. Okay. And it's even person by person in some instances. Really? Yeah. Basically, it's, it's about 190 years of bad ideas on top of bad ideas on top of bad ideas that form an absolutely illogical, nonsensical, insane way of life for a lot of people. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So having worked in the legal field, I mean, there's usually things that are, you know, you have markers that have to be satisfied to to hit something like, you know, the definition of a contract has certain markers. So the definition of an Indian under law derived from Article 1, I mean, is there anything that we can point to that say, you know? No. Uh, no. Okay. no. I mean, the federal government will decide it. And what is or is not an Indian is decided on a tribe by tribe or even an individual by individual basis. Okay. So, so contrary to many people's opinions, you don't have to have any actual blood from any of these Indian nations to be legally considered an Indian. Okay. Right? That's not required. Uh, on the other hand, you could have 100% blood from these Indian nations and not be considered an Indian. It has nothing to do with blood. Okay. That's, that's first of all. People need to understand it's irrational. Okay. So, but it's, it's how it works. So, when Elizabeth Warren checked the box for Native American on her She was committing fraud. She was committing fraud. She was committing fraud. Okay. And uh, Cherokee, I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. We have a particular culture and a particular history okay. that makes it very susceptible for people to call themselves Cherokee. Okay. And uh, I know as we'll explain this now, for Cherokee, we are different than most people around the world. Anyone could show up and become a Cherokee until 1906. Okay. If you wanted to be a Cherokee, you could show up and say, I want to be a Cherokee. And we would generally give you that opportunity. And you would live... Among us, for some period of time, and if you could demonstrate Cherokee is what you really wanted to be, and you embraced the language, you embraced the culture, you did the right thing by your neighbors, right? You could become Cherokee, and eventually your neighbors would vote on it <laughs> if you got to be Cherokee. So consequently, people from many other Indian nations became Cherokee. I have uh, Shawnee, who became Cherokee in my background. Mm -hmm. By French and Indian Wars, 1750s, 1760s, it's thought 20% of Cherokee were European. <laughs> because in this aristocratic system that the colonies were, young men, all they had to do was just go over that hill, find the Cherokee, and they could be free. Right. Because we are a non-compulsory, non-hierarchical society. And uh, there's things as a Cherokee you can't do. There's nothing you are required to do. Really? Yes. Okay. And, and that's how most of these tribal societies are, are organized along that basis. Interesting. So, the bottom line is this. As a Cherokee, we are probably the most racially and ethically mixed people in the world. Really? Yes, because anybody could show up and be Cherokee okay. for almost all of the last 18,000 years. And so it's easy for people like Elizabeth Warren to say, well, I'm a Cherokee. She is not. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, so help me, in your mind, as a member of the Cherokee Nation, help me define, how do you make that distinction? So, If it's, if it's something that is just a legal status. Well, interestingly enough, for the Cherokee, so different groups of people have different cultural attributes. Okay. One of the cultural attributes of the Cherokee is we count and record everything. Okay. Everything. I mean, if you want to know how many sheep were born in the Sequoia District in 1880, you could probably look that up and find that out in our archives. <laughs> wow. I mean, we are ostensibly, and people find this hard to believe, we are ostensibly the best documented people in history. Really? We know everybody. 
Okay. And, and it's a cultural imperative not to forget anyone. So, yeah, we know Elizabeth Warren isn't a Cherokee. We would have records if she was a Cherokee. We do not. She cannot provide any records okay. that she is a Cherokee. So it is to some to some extent it is a, a, an inherited status. Yeah. Well, then. you could show up at become Cherokee. The federal government ended that in 1906, and we'll, we'll get into that. Okay. The federal government made it basically an inherited status. In the 1970s, it became, if you had an ancestor on the DOS roll, we'll, we'll get into all that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Okay. So, so there's, it's, it's less like becoming an American or, or being an American than well, it is like being Russian or being yeah, Jewish. Well, Cherokee was sort of the prototype of the melting pot, uh-huh. right? If yeah. I could show up, if this is what you want to be, if you want to come to America and become an American, you can become an American. Right. If you want to show up to become Cherokee, you can become a Cherokee. Until the United States government told you that that was not exactly, how it worked. Exactly. And so we, we're this huge mix of... To a large extent, adopted people who showed up. And the most famous of those is probably Sam Houston. Okay. Who was a Cherokee by adoption. He showed up and said, I want to be Cherokee. And he proved it. Sam Houston Sam in Houston, Houston, Texas. Yes. Is that Sam Houston? Yes. No, Sam Houston was a Cherokee. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh, yeah. That's huh. where he went before the Texas Revolution. That's where he was. Okay. He was a Cherokee living with us. Oh, I know weird. exactly where his house was. Wow. So... <laughs> Okay. Well, um, God, that's fascinating. I just, I had no idea. And I can get on board with the adoption thing. I am adopted. So I (laughs) I like that. I like that. But yeah, you can show up and become Cherokee. Okay. But this leads to a great amount of abuse. A lot of people saying they're Cherokee who are not. Right. So. Like Elizabeth Warren. Yes. Focahontas. (laughs) So, (laughs) all right. So. Basically, let's let's start with that. The the Indian is a legal status. Yes. What are the implications of that for the earliest part of you know colonial history, pre-colonial history? Well, you know, what what are the implications in all that? So let me address something else real quick. Okay. Before we go there. Indian is legal status as assigned by the federal government. Right. So I have a card at home from the Bureau of Indian Affairs says Keith Nobles is an Indian. Okay. That's literally what it says. <laughs> Okay. okay. Cherokee is what I am. Okay. Okay. So Indian is legal status. Cherokee is what I am. So I have another card in my wallet. Looks a lot like a driver's license from the Cherokee Nation says Keith Nobles is a Cherokee. Okay. So these are two things people tend to confuse. Indian is legal status. Cherokee is a nationality. Okay. And we are a nation. Hence the Cherokee Nation. Hence it is a nationality. That, and we'll get into this too, that that nationality is also American. Okay. Is curve some people cannot quite negotiate. Right. Right. Sounds like most people can not. I'm, I'm having trouble with it and I've, I've right. been studying this yeah. stuff for a long time too. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll okay. talk about, there was an actual court decision that defined that. Okay. And a decision written by John Marshall that defined that. So, do all tribes identify as nations? And do all tribes, all tribes do are something similar? Nations. To this? Okay. And this is another part of this nonsensical, insane okay. history. Right. That many of these nations are now corporations. Right. Right. And how that came about is part of what we'll talk about here. Well, and that's something I have a little bit of experience with because I lived in Alaska. Yes. And so I know there's. Obviously, what we're going to be talking about over the course of these next couple of episodes is a history that is fraught with violence and horrible things and, and all that kind of stuff. I always thought before I went to Alaska, I thought the Alaskans, the, the Yupik and the Inuit, they're going to have a much better situation because they're not on reservations. And, you know, they, they're organized into 13 corporations. And, yes. you know, so they have economic self-determination. And, you know, so everything is going to be way better for the natives up in Alaska. And then I got there and I lived there and realized that is... One hundred percent not the case. No, it's 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 abhorrent. I mean, I lived in I lived in the Alaskan bush, and probably most it was a town that was ninety five percent native. Probably at least half the town was living in huts constructed out of quarter inch high plywood and stuff like that. I mean, in in the Alaskan bush in the middle of winter, you know, it was pretty bad. Oh yeah. (laughs) So those that economic self determination meant absolutely nothing, at least in the bush. Yeah, that's not even really true. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So all tribes are nations. And do they all issue the identification like the Cherokees? Uh, They all have some form of identification. Something like that. Okay. Okay. So that nationality and the legal status are both affirmed with actual documentation. Yes. That you have that. That's right. Okay. Yes. All right. So now we've we've cleared that up. Now, where do you want to go? <laughs> well, I've, I've been joking with you that this is a wind Keith up and just let him go. Kind of, kind well, of uh, yeah, well, actually, so if we're going to talk about history of 
government relationship with Indian nations. Up until about 1850, you're mostly talking about the Cherokee. Okay, so that was the main this was, nation that they we, were We were out there doing things other tribes weren't doing and doing them before anyone else was doing them. Okay. So if you go back a little bit, before the American Revolution, okay. you had a, this part of what's now the Eastern United States and the Cherokee for us, our traditional territory was Western Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, all the way down Southern Appalachia to Northern Georgia, Northern Alabama. Okay. This is our, we, we have this enormous territory. And we were at that time, probably the second or third largest tribe in America. Okay. We're now the first. We're and just so people understand context here. Cherokee, we have, there's now over 400,000 citizens of the Cherokee nation. Okay. But overall, the United States is only about 2% Indian. And I'm going to use the term Indian because okay. there's other terms, indigenous, Native American. They all have baggage, but I'm going to use Indian because... It has an actual definable legal definition, right. as we talked about. Okay. So it's not a matter of dissing the other terms, right? Okay. It's just this one is definable. Well, as an Indian, what do you prefer? Do you prefer Native? I prefer Cherokee. Yeah, okay. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> That's really what I, there's no really good term to describe everybody whose ancestors were here before Jamestown. Right. Right. There's just no good term to describe that as of yet. And all the terms people try to use have some sort of baggage okay. in some way okay. or some sort of inaccuracy in some way. So we use Indian simply because it is legally definable right. for the purposes of, of our conversation. Okay. So we're not, we're not deliberately being un-PC is what you're saying. No, I, I'm not. <laughs> okay. But it's, it's legally definable. A lot of things people think are slang or not, they're actually legally definable. Term Indian country is a legally definable term. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Justice Scalia, 30 years ago, said, when it comes to Indian law, we're just making it up as we go. It's just... And that was 30 years ago, 1992. Nonsensical. Yeah. So... Okay. (laughs) All right. So if you go back before the revolution... Okay. That eastern part of the United States, which the Cherokee occupied, that's part of southern Appalachia. Mm -hmm. So we interface with the British, the French, and the Spanish. Okay. And in colonial America, the British, the French, the Spanish, their primary concern was extracting wealth from North America back to Europe. And so their primary concern with the Cherokee and other nations was trade. They were mostly interested in trading with the Cherokee so they could take that wealth back to Europe. Sure. And they trading with the British, the French, the Spanish was very popular because they enhanced our quality of life. We got products we otherwise didn't have. Right. Right. As trade does. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Short story here. Occasionally, the British, the French, Spanish would get involved in wars in Europe. Right. And those wars would inevitably spill over to North America. Of course. And they would always recruit us and other Indian nations to be on their side in these wars. So the British, French, Spanish. And we would typically, we didn't view any of these people as permanent friends or permanent enemies. Okay. We just viewed them as business opportunities. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah. What are you going to give us to join the war on your side? And maybe we joined that war on your side. And sometimes we would switch sides in the middle of a war if the other guy offered us a better deal. It was just business opportunities. (laughs) That's awesome. It was was nothing ideological about it. There was nothing. Like I said, when the war was over, everybody wanted to be our friends again because everyone wanted to trade with us. Right. Right. So when the American Revolution started, the British induced us, the Cherokee, to join their, their side of the war and make war against the Americans. Okay. We were slow to figure out this was different. Okay. We thought this was just another one of these European wars, right? When the war's over, everybody would be friends again. Everybody will want to do trade with us. Okay. Okay. But it wasn't like that. The Americans were not interested in extracting wealth and sending it back to Europe. Right. Right. It was fundamentally different. So we got into the Revolutionary War on the British side. The British, of course, lost at Yorktown. The British went home. Mm-hmm. We were still at war with the United States, and we could not find a way out of this war. Oh, no. We simply couldn't. Under the Articles of Confederation, we would have had to make peace with each individual state. Oh, wow. We would have had to go to Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, said, what are your terms for peace? And we did that. And the terms for peace were always leave. <laughs> okay. Get out of here. Right? And so we couldn't make peace because we would have no place to live. Right. This was the basic problem we had. So we continued in this war and we were really bled dry. We went from being a pretty prosperous people in 1775 to the early 1790s. We're pretty poor people. By this point, our wealth has been gone. And the only reason 
and people read the Federalist Papers. It doesn't explicitly say this, but the Federalist Papers this is fascinating. Federalist Papers alludes to this. Okay. Okay. That the only reason we were able to stand the war as long as we did against the United States was because the Spanish were supplying us. Okay. And the Spanish were supplying us because Florida was Spanish. Okay. And Spain was afraid if the United States were to make peace with the Cherokee, they would turn their eyes to taking Florida. And so the Spanish thought if they could keep the Cherokee at war with the United States, the United States would not have the wherewithal to take Florida from the Spanish. Okay. That was the whole rationale. (laughs) That makes sense. So we're in this war. We have a fellow who has risen to be a pretty talented war leader named Dragon Canoe. He is killed. We are really at the end of our string. Okay. So fortunately, the United States has passed the Constitution. And we get to make peace with the federal government, not with each of these individual states. That's good. <laughs> you know, it's very good. So we, we make peace with the United States in the early 1790s. And this is really important because people fail to appreciate this. Even people who claim they want the Constitution fail to appreciate this. Indians are in the Constitution. Right. Right. Article one, Congress shall have power to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Well, and I've always thought that that was really an interesting part of the Constitution. Yes. Because of the status that it awards the Indian tribes. Yes. We are not a foreign power. Right. We are not a state, but we are recognized as a national entity with a government. Right. Right. That's what this does. Right. Okay. And, and the intent there of those who wrote the Constitution was for the Indian nations to have sovereignty, to be self-governing. Right. This is the intent. This is what's constitutional. Okay. And then Article 6 is the other pertinent part. The Constitution and laws of the United States, which shall be made pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything of the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. So basically, you put these two together Article 1, Article 6. Right. You have treaties that are going to define what territory the Indian nations have jurisdiction over. Right. And then article one is, yeah, they will be sovereign. They will be able to exercise their own self-determinancy within those boundaries. Right. I mean, this is really what that adds up to. It's pretty revolutionary. I mean, it's on the face of the planet, isn't it? I mean, to have that that framework, of course, it wasn't abided by, but... Well, actually, it was a continuation of the British model. Okay. And they consciously, intentionally did that. They debated that. Well, they draft the Constitution. How are we going to deal with this? We're going to continue the British model of treaties and recognizing their sovereignty. Okay. And these are independent entities. Okay. And we're going to put boundaries around that independence. They can't associate with foreign powers. Okay. They can't uh, declare independence per se. Okay. But within these boundaries, they're, they're independent. So that that's that's what creates kind of this murky, at least in my mind, because I haven't studied it like you have. It seems like it's a murky legal legal status because they're not. I mean, they can't just make their own laws. Well, John right? Marshall's got to fix that. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, we could make our own laws. That was the point. But like, you couldn't. You weren't going to like you know decriminalize all all foreign drugs or anything like that. I mean, it, that that kind of stuff well, was. And it wasn't until not too long ago that like the gambling on the on the reservations and stuff like that. I mean, that's. That has grown up under sort of this framework, hasn't it? Yeah, in a way? it kind of grew up as a loophole okay. in federal law. Okay. Right? Somebody said, oh, there's, there's actually no federal law stopping us from doing this. They stop us from doing everything else in the world, <laughs> but they don't stop us from doing this. Okay. And, uh, yeah. I and mean, that's, that's where it grew from. Yeah, okay. Exactly. That's, Fair enough. that's where it came from. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but this is, this is the constitutional basis. And under that constitutional basis, George Washington being the first president, mm-hmm. as the first Indian policy. It is the best, most rational, most sane Indian policy we've had ever. Figures. <laughs> right? George Washington. Yeah. Because here's the belief, and, and John Marshall will later echo this belief in a court decision. Right. The founder's belief is these Indian nations, these people have the same natural rights we do. That's their belief. And so when you hear people, oh, the United States has found this racist principle. No, they believe this. And as such, believing the Indian nations have the same natural rights. Right. George Washington's Indian policy is commonly called acculturation. So that later on becomes a very dirty word. But in this context, it is not. Because what George Washington does, he invites the Indian nations in to become Americans. Right. He invites them into the family. Right. He goes, you know, you don't have to come join us. But if you want to join us, 
you're welcome. Come be Americans. Yeah. So we, the Cherokee, mm-hmm. will take them up on that. Okay. So we get out of this war with the United States in the early 1790s. We're debating how to do this, what to do. We right. can't make war against the United States. That's just not a practical solution, right? Sure. We will lose. Right. We fought the United States for almost 20 years. Right. But we could hold them off, but we could not defeat them. Okay. It was obvious we were not going to be able to hold them off forever. That's a rational assessment of the situation. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So we have yeah. these three men, Charles Hicks, Major Ridge, James Van, okay. and they're going to put their heads together. They are prominent men of the Cherokee Nation. They are not the chief. Charles Hicks would become chief at the end of his life. 30 years later. Okay. But they're not the chief. They're just prominent men. Okay. These three men are basically going to put their heads together for years. And they're going to go, hey, what's what's the solution? Right. Because one of the things we notice here, when we finally get out of this war with the United States, we look to our east. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we Southern Appalachia. Right. And we were surrounded primarily by Muscogean tribes. Okay. Okay. In fact, we're not actually Cherokee. We're Chalagee. But we're called Cherokee by the world because Spanish gave us that name because Spanish had encountered these Muscogean nations, formed a relationship with them before they met us. Mm-hmm. And when they asked these Muscogean nations, who are those people? The Muscogee said Cherokee, which is Muscogean for those people talk funny. <laughs> because <laughs> oh, they speak enough. a Muscogean dialect and we speak an Iroquoian dialect. Okay. Right? <laughs> but be that as it may, all the tribes, all the people to the east of us are gone. Yeah. They don't exist anymore. Yeah. In this less than 20 year period, they were gone. Yeah. Was that because they were being killed or because they were being absorbed into the culture or what? Or died of or disease. Died of diseases. And, yeah. Yeah. All of the above. Or some just went and moved off and got absorbed into other Indian nations. But these had been cohesive, sovereign groups of people for thousands of years. And in the bat of an eye, they were gone. Wow. This had a profound effect sure. on Hicks, Ridge, and Van. Okay. Because they're looking, go, well, you know, just geographically speaking, we are next. Fair. Right? Yeah. So where's where's the solution here? Right. And, and they're always they're gonna have to make some kind of compromise with the United States for us to survive. So what they're gonna do is they're going to debate, argue, discuss what will we compromise and what will we not compromise. Mm-hmm. What do we compromise that makes us no longer Cherokee? Right? This is an important it's an existential question. Well, it yeah. is, right? Because yeah. we, Cherokee. We consider ourselves to have been around about 18,000 years. Okay, we have archaeological evidence that we've been around 12,000 years. Wow. And we think that's probably a little short. Okay. So we've been there a long time. Right. This is not, you know, we formed a club last week. <laughs> right. Right. This is not what this is. Yeah. And so what they will not give up is that the earth will always be populated with a cohesive, coherent, sovereign Cherokee people. That's what we will not sacrifice. Anything else? is negotiable. We're not going to give that up. Okay. Right. This is basically what they arrive at. So in the meantime, George Washington has invited us to become Americans. George Washington will send us an Indian agent and we will not like him <laughs> and we will send him back. Okay. And he'll send us another Indian agent named Return Megs. Returned Megs. Return Megs. M-E-I-G-S. Okay. Okay. And he's a Virginian like George Washington. And he's going to be an excellent Indian agent because he is going to greatly assist us in working out this process of surviving. Okay. Okay. He is going to so fall in love with and admire the Cherokee that when Return Meg's term is up as Indian agent, Uh he will not go home to Virginia. He will not take another Indian post. He will stay and become Cherokee. Oh, wow. So our, our Indian agent ends up becoming Cherokee, the fellow who is representing Washington in this process. Okay. Right? In the age where these letters had to go back and forth by horseback between Washington and well, Georgia, mm-hmm. Tennessee, it takes about 13 years for us to ask our questions, get an answer, mm-hmm. debate, argue, discuss, ask more questions. Right. Support, right? right. And this kind of went for 13 years. And finally, we decided, okay, we'll become Americans, 1807. Okay. Cool. Yeah, yeah it is cool, right? We said Major Ridge. He was not yet Major Ridge. He was in the Ridge. We send him the White House, and he tells Thomas Jefferson in the Oval Office, Cherokee will become Americans. And we start on this process. So we declare ourselves a republic in 1811. Okay. We become, we remake our entire society to conform more or less with American standards, as loosely as we can get away with. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. And in the meantime, Sequoia, who is a Cherokee, has been working on a syllabary because Sequoia, 
who's a completely illiterate man, yeah, understands if we're going to do this, if we're going to become Americans, we have to have a written language. That's yeah. just going to be required. Right. Right. This is a huge deficit we have with these people. Right. And he's going to sit down. It's going to take about 18 years. And he is going to come up with the Cherokee syllabary. So an illiterate man comes up with this working functional syllabary for a language that's never had a written form. That's amazing. Oh, it is one that's of the greatest amazing. intellectual feats in history. Right. And he recognizes, no, nobody had ever done any kind of study like this. He recognizes Cherokee, the spoken language, mm-hmm. has 88 syllables. Okay. He's got to turn those syllables into characters. Now, the trick in Cherokee is each of those 88 syllables has up to 14 different pronunciations, meaning very different things. Right. But nonetheless, if you understand the context of what's being written, you understand which of those pronunciations is correct gotcha. for the syllable, right? Okay. And we still use the syllabary today. What this is going to do is allow us in 1827 to become a constitutional republic. Ah, okay. Right? We're going to pass the constitution. And so... We did in 20 years, between 1807 and 1827, what even our biggest supporters thought would take us 100 years. Well, sure. Become a constitutional republic with a written language. And it's not just we had a written language. Sequoia came up with a brilliant way to teach the written language. And so we went from pretty close to a 0% literacy rate Mm -hmm. in 1821 to about 92% by 1827. That's amazing. We taught virtually everyone to read and write in six years. And we did it because it was important. Yeah. We thought to become a constitutional republic, everybody had to have this skill. Help me, because constitutions aren't necessarily, a, aren't always a necessary feature of, of a society. Why was it important for the Cherokee to become a constitutional republic? Because we're Americans. Okay. That's why. We took being Americans very, very seriously. So I mentioned Major Ridge and the Ridge. Mm-hmm. He got the name Major Ridge because in the War of 1812, the Cherokee sided with the United States against their neighbors. Okay. And we raised a regiment that fought in the War of 1812, ironically, under Andrew Jackson. Okay. And the Ridge was a major in that regiment, hence he was forever after that known as Major Ridge. Gotcha. But yeah, we, we took this seriously. Yeah, we were Americans. Okay. That's what we truly in our hearts believed. Okay. Right. From this invitation, which is why what would happen would be so difficult. Sure. Yeah. We we accomplished all this. We started a newspaper in 1828. That's amazing. Because we think everybody to, to be a good American, to participate in this republic, everyone had to know what was happening. Sure. Right. So, yeah, we started a newspaper so everyone could read. What's going on? Right. Yeah. So. That's so cool. No, it is very cool. And so so it, sitting there, sitting here in, in 1827, you've got, the picture looks pretty rosy, it sounds like. You know, kind of at yeah, that no, point, right? Yeah, no, we've accomplished. Accomplished so much. The United States, you know, has has brought you in and, and you're Americans, you're your own constitutional republic, your yeah. own nation. Yeah, you, we're, we're the first people, right. 1828, first people in this country to make primary education mandatory. Really? Yeah. Okay. Every Cherokee child had to go to school. Wow. Because by the 1810s, we realized ultimately our strategy, and it continues to be the Cherokee strategy for survival is you have to know everything you have to know to be Cherokee, but you also have to know everything you have to know to be American. Right. Right. So the schools were really focused on teaching what you have to be to be an American. Okay. Right. This was really the, the emphasis of that education program. Because that, that those weren't necessarily things that were woven into the culture. This no, stuff nobody. To, to be Cherokee would Most woven people into had no idea. Okay. They had no idea what Aristotle had said. Well, yeah. Right. They had no <laughs> idea what John Locke had said. Right. Right. They, they had no idea what Thomas Jefferson had said. Yeah. Right. And so the whole idea here is we have to know what they know to be on an equal footing with them. Right. In fact, we really have to know more than they know because we have to be able to outthink them to continue to survive. So we're going to learn everything they know. We're going to know everything Americans know. That's that's going to be the key. Sounds like plus, you know, a bunch <laughs> <laughs> on top of what Americans know. We yeah. take our history and our culture so for granted. Oh, yeah. But, yeah that, we're paying the price for that. But now. Yeah, that was the whole strategy. We, mm. we realized that in the 1810s. Okay. Yeah, we sent people. Uh, there was a fellow named Buck Wadey who we would send to inquire about constitutions. Okay. Okay. Charles Hicks, one of these men, he was literate in English. And when he died, it is thought he had the largest private library in the Southern half of the country. Wow. He was a voracious reader. Okay. He read everything. 
He knew what constitutions were. He knew what republics were. He knew what democracies were. He knew what the Greeks and the Romans thought. He knew. I mean, he had read all this. Right. Yeah. The idea that all Cherokees should know what these things are was important because this this was going to be the key. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just, knowledge is power. Yeah. Well, exactly. It sounds like that was that in, in a very pithy statement. Sounds like that kind of sums up what the Cherokee it, strategy was. Exactly. So sadly for us, the 1820s. We also get the Democratic Party. Right. And the Democratic Party is founded on two principles. One is the preservation and expansion of slavery. And the other one is Indians can't live around white people. And for much of the 1820s, there's a debate within the Democratic Party if that means extermination of Indians or removal. So let me ask you this, just just to kind of put this all in context. You know, the Cherokees are one of the nations, but obviously we have many others. Yes. That, you know, Indian nations that are here. What were they doing while you guys were providing the exemplar for how to do it right? Yeah. So here's what was happening. Four of the nations will follow us. Okay. Chickasaw, Choctaw, Seminole, the Creek Nation, which are Creek Nations, a confederation of Muscogee tribes. Okay. Okay. They're going to follow us into this becoming Americans. And every other Indian nation that had any meaningful contact with the United States at that point is looking at what we are doing, trying to see, can we make this work? Okay. Because if we can make this work, this is a viable alternative for everyone. Are there along the frontier as America pushed westward, are we getting at this point in time, you know, by the 1820s, are we getting sort of the the wholesale slaughter of of settlers and that kind of thing? Is that is that Uh, outside of the War of 1812 and events around that? Not so much. Okay. Yeah. The frontier at this time, you're talking Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, you know, that that part of the country is the the Wild West frontier. Seriously, Wild West. Yes. My my ancestors settled in Ohio just prior to this, um, probably 1800 to 1810. And uh, I mean, it was Indian country, I guess, at that point in time. It was pretty close. Yeah. So except for the War of 1812, though, you know, they're they're moving into the Midwest and, and, you know, we're not seeing at that point, we're not seeing the the Indians and the and the settlers getting along or. No, no. Well, <laughs> I mean, I just I'm trying to I'm trying to paint the picture of what the no, outside like. of the War of 1812, the events around that there is not the wholesale war that we later see. OK, and, OK. And we'll go into exactly why we saw that later. Sure. Yeah. Right. So so the Democrats are debating this in the absence of, you know, really organized aggression against settlers. And yeah. Against, what, what, against what, the, the what the Democrats want is that land occupied by Indian nations east of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. That's what they want, mm-hmm. you know, in a word. And so this starts a series of state laws trying to chase the Indian nations out. And the most egregious of these are, are Georgia. Okay. Georgia will make it where a Cherokee cannot testify in court. And the practical effect of that is it's open season for crime against Cherokee because you can't be convicted if a white man won't testify you committed the crime. So you can rob, rape, murder Cherokee at will. Gotcha. Right. So the very worst elements of society have ready-made victims. And that's that's what happens. Safe victims. Safe yeah. victims. The victims that they are safe to rape and pillage. Yeah. Yeah. There won't be any court <laughs> charges for what you do against the Cherokee. So we had we had treaties. You are American citizens. You are, you know, all of this is is, you know, from a legal standpoint, all of this is in place and they're violating all of that. Yes, they're violating all of that. Does the federal government step up and say you can't do that? Federal government this time does not feel it has really much, if any, influence on those state governments. Okay. And so what's going to happen here as this debate occurs, if they're going to relocate Indian nations east of the Mississippi or if they're going to exterminate them? What a debate. Pardon me? What a debate. (laughs) Well, this is the debate within the Democratic Party. Right. And into this scenario, this situation, we, the Cherokee, we understand what a grave threat the Democratic Party is. Mm Mm-hmm. To us. Mm-hmm. And we experience that every day in Georgia, every day. And we're going to see three, send three young men into this national debate. So John Ross, Elias Boudinot, and John Ridge in the 1820s. And they will speak everywhere they can. They will speak at colleges. They'll speak at churches. They'll speak in people's homes. They will speak on street corners. Okay. Trying to convince people that we are Americans that were humans. I mean, Democrats, like my favorite example of what the Democrats are saying in the 1820s, they compare the Cherokee to hogs rooting up the countryside who should be dealt with the same way as hogs. And this is literally what they say. And so into this 
environment, we send these three young men who are going to argue that we're of common humanity, we're Americans. And as a republic, the Cherokee Nation demands an equal seat at the table with all other republics. Right. Right. That's, that's really the demand. We, we have done this. We're a constitutional republic. We're literate. At this time, we are a nation of, of entrepreneurs. We own businesses. We operate. We're exporting products. We own ships. Right. That are sending our Cherokee products to Europe. Wow. I mean, we're, we're on with the program here. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. Right. I mean, we really are. Yeah. Right. We've got mandatory education. Our yeah. children can read. Your children are. Maybe they can't. Maybe they can't. <laughs> right. I mean, this is very much our view. Right. We we earn an equality here. Right. With all of you. Right. Right. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from a speech. Elias Boonut gave Philadelphia in 1826. So people understand what they're saying. So Elias Boonut's going to say, what is an Indian? Is he not formed of the same materials with yourself? For of one blood, God created all the nations to dwell on the face of the earth. I've had greater advantages than most of my race. And I now stand before you delegated by my native country, i.e. the Cherokee Nation, to seek her interests, to labor for her respectability, and by my public efforts to assist in raising her to an equal standing with other nations of the earth. In times of peace, she will plead the common liberties of America. In times of war, her intrepid sons will sacrifice their lives in your defense. And because she will be useful to you in coming times, she asks you to assist her in her present struggles. She asks not for greatness. She seeks not wealth. She pleads only for assistance become respectable as a nation to enlighten and ennoble her sons and to ornament her daughters with modesty and virtue. She pleads for this assistance too, because on her destiny hangs that of many nations. I ask you, shall red men live or shall they be swept from the earth? With you and this public at large, the decision chiefly rests. Must they perish? So, you know, she said, because on her destiny hangs that of many nations. Yeah. And it's because... All these other Indian nations are watching. Sure. Can the Cherokee make this work? Sure. Because this is a viable alternative for everyone. Right. Right. And this is why the Democrats are so focused on the Cherokee, because they have to make sure it doesn't work right. for the Cherokee. They have to. Yeah. Yeah. This is contrary to all the ambitions of the Democrat Party for the Cherokee to be viewed as equal. Right. Right. They're just once again, showing their true colors that nobody matters but them. I guess I, I, I shake my head as I sit here and listen to this, you know, because they've never changed. It's important <laughs> in light of modern progressive narratives. Yeah. People don't understand this first 40 years. Right. Right. Where the Indian nations were invited into the family, some accepted that we, the Cherokee, we did all this to become Americans because we took that invitation seriously. Right. Right. This was, damn it, we're Americans. It was a promise that was made. If you, and, 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 and we you believed satisfied it. it. That's yeah. right. I mean, later on, you know, 10 years after this on the Trail of Tears, Amazing Grace is the song we sang on the Trail really? of Tears as we marched west. Yeah, that, that was the song we sang. Huh. Wow. And, yeah, we, we were Americans. Yeah. Right? That's, yeah. That's just how we viewed it then. That's how we view it now. Right. So, okay. So, they, they're making this, this plea anywhere that they can speak. Ross and Boudinot and Ridge. Is that Ridge the same Major Ridge? It's his son. It's his son. Okay. John Ridge, his son. Okay. You know, they're making this plea. What, what's the effect? What happens? It's pretty effective. Okay. Not effective enough to prevent Andrew Jackson Democrats from being elected, but okay. it's pretty effective. Okay. They change a lot of people's minds because we spoke earlier about James Fenimore Cooper, last right. the Mohicans, right? Right. Most people believe this stuff because they've never met an Indian. Sure. Now they're meeting these three fellows and they're like, you know, these guys are, they're civil and they're intelligent and they're well-spoken and they're smart and they're educated. Right. There's really no difference here. Right. I mean, that's really what the people they're meeting are, are the conclusions they're drawing. Right. And, which is the whole point of sending them in the first place. Because the, this whole Democrat rhetoric depends on people not knowing Indians. Bingo. Right. Yeah. Once you know them, you go. No, that's what's true. Yeah. All that hogs right, thing. Not that hogs. Just doesn't, yeah. They're not wild animals. Yeah. They're not the, the red savage that they've been. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole strategy behind. And ultimately, John Ross will, will uh, speak to Congress in 1829. Okay. He'll be the first Indian to ever address Congress. And he's going to make the same plea. We're human beings. We Cherokee are Americans. Yeah. We just want an equal seat at the table because we've done everything you ask to earn that equal seat at the table. We did it much quicker than any of you ever imagined. Sure. Right? Right. I mean, so, yeah, it's exactly where 
where this is. Of course, in 1828, Andrew Jackson is elected. Right. Democrat Congress with Andrew Jackson will pass the Indian Removal Act in 1830. And we were fortunate in this sense. Andrew Jackson came down on the side of removal and not extermination. That was kind of the deciding factor there for the Democrat Party. Right. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here talking to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm glad that he, yay, Andrew Jackson for one thing. Let's, let's, That's just, right. let's just go with that. That's right. So what's going to happen here? We're going to sue in federal court. Cherokee Nation v. Georgia. Okay. And John Marshall is going to give the decision. So and I'm going to read This it. is when? This is in 1832. 1832. Okay. I'm going to read an excerpt because... These, these two excerpts are, I know you're not supposed to read stuff on there, but, <laughs> but they're important to understand because we're talking about this in the context that most people who are Americans don't understand. And that was this first 40 years of the United States and Indian relationships. Right. Which is not, hey, you're a bunch of racists who just want to kill Indians. That's not what was happening here. Right. They were like the federal government was like, come on into the family. Right. And it was the Democrats. Right. Who, who asked that. Right. Right. And so that that's that, an important that first part. part is never taught. No, that's it's an important part of the narrative here to understand what really happened. Right. Right. So in Cherokee Nation v. Georgia, John Marshall, his chief justice of the Supreme Court, will write this decision. He says the Cherokees are a state. <laughs> yeah, we're a state. They have uniformly tr- been uniformly treated as a state since the settlement of our country. The numerous treaties made with them by the United States recognize them as a people capable of maintaining the relations of peace and war, of being responsible in their political character for any violation of their engagements or for any aggression committed on the citizens of the United States by any individual of their community. Laws have been enacted in the spirit of these treaties. The acts of our government plainly recognize the Cherokee Nation as a state and the court are bound by those acts. The Indians are acknowledged to have an unquestionable inheritance for an unquestioned right to the lands they occupy until that right shall be extinguished by a voluntary session to our government. It may well be doubted whether those tribes which reside within the acknowledged boundaries of the United States can, with strict accuracy, be denominated foreign nations. They may more correctly, perhaps be denominated domestic dependent nations. So we talked about the Constitution. You mentioned this is weird. We have state governments, foreign governments, right. Indians. Right. Well, this is John Marshall is giving a definition to that. He's, he's backing domestic that up, yeah. dependent nations. So yes, we are dependent on the United States. No, we do not get to go make a treaty with France. Okay, right, right. But, Which, from a national security standpoint, for the U.S. is smart. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Well, but we have to compensate the nations for it, yes, but we are that. part of this country. Exactly, we are part of the United States of America, but we are distinct right. from the federal government, the state government, and foreign governments. Right. So the other case here well, gonna, before before we move ahead. on, I want to I want to just focus in on one thing that he said in that in that decision. Is that laws have been enacted in the spirit of these treaties. I, for some reason, that just stuck out to me. It's just the legislatures, the Congress, yes, everything had up state. until this point, up yes. until the Democrats got into power and and decided that this was the core core of their being was to subjugate Indians and black people. You know, up until they got into power, the Machinery of the United States government had relied upon the promises in the Constitution in Articles 1 and 6. They had relied on these treaties and, and the veracity of these treaties that had been made. No, exactly. And what really the basis of that was the recognition that the Cherokee Nation is indeed a nation. Right. And, right. And we're going to invite this nation to join us. Right. And we accept. Here's what you need to do to become part of us. We did it. And Andrew Jackson and the Democrats were like, just kidding. Immediately turn around and, and, and negate it all. Exactly. Yeah the, yeah. the view of Andrew Jackson Democrats is you're not Americans. You cannot be Americans. You can never be Americans. So um, I want to I want to just kind of focus on the timeline here real quick. And um, and then we'll get into this this next um, Worcester v, v. Georgia that you want to talk about. But the timeline. So 1807. Let me make sure I'm getting these right. Okay. 1807, Cherokee accept the invitation to become Americans between, they become a a republic in in 1811. Between 1811 and 1827, they go from a a nation that has no written 
language right. at all. So right. not only a nation that has a written language, but they have a 92% literacy rate. A- a mandatory primary education. Mandatory pri- primary education. It's a constitutional republic now. At the in same a time. In a newspaper. <laughs> at, at the time all of this is happening is the rise of the Democrat Party. Yes. How much did... In, in your opinion, how much did the rise of the Indian nation or the, the rise of at least the Cherokee in, right. in full view, uh, obviously the, the lands that you occupied in full view of the South that was so economically dependent on, you know, on slavery and on, on subjugating their fellow human beings for, for economic gain? And how we much picked up slavery, too, as part of being American Southerners? Oh, uh, Cherokee picked up chattel slavery, too. Okay. Right. So well, that mean, muddies the water a little bit, but <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but yeah, yeah. We, we did, right? But you were Southerners. I mean, that's that, that's right. It that was, was part of. What yeah, was, we became part of the Americans around us. Sure, that's how it worked. What I'm wondering is how much in the in the minds of the Democrats, of so these 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 Western European Democrats, these progressives um, who are are focused on this chattel slavery, who are focused on this economic gain from the subjugation subjugation of fellow humans, if they saw the Indians as a threat, no, um, no or, they just wanted our land. They just wanted you to hundred percent. Okay. They wanted us gone. They okay. didn't care if they be moving us far off to the West or killing us. They were not particular. They just wanted our land and wanted us gone. Okay. That, okay. That's the whole story there. And not just us, but every other nation east of Mississippi. Okay. They wanted gone. Right. And then eventually so, all the ones west of Mississippi too. So. <laughs> well, yeah. 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 But yeah, that, that's, yeah. I mean, that was, that was the subtotal of that story. It's so sad. All right. So that what what you had just read was from John Marshall's decision in Cherokee Nation v. Georgia in 1832. And Worcester v. Georgia. Worcester v. Georgia. Is that the same time period then? Yeah, it is exactly the same time period, exactly the same events. So Cherokee Nation has sued Georgia. Okay. In federal court going, what you're doing to chase us out is unconstitutional. Article one, article six. Right. So among the other things, these really obnoxious laws Georgia had passed. They passed a law that white people could not help the Cherokee. If you okay. were white, you were not allowed to lend any kind of assistance to any Cherokee. And what, what consequences did they attach to that? Uh, prison. <laughs> Great. Yeah. And so it was really aimed at missionaries. So we had okay. first invited missionaries in to Cherokee Nation in 1802. Okay. The Moravian missionaries in 1802. And we, unlike many Indian nations, we had a really exquisite relationship with our missionaries. Okay. And part of that was because we invited them in and we put really sound rules around them. Okay. And so the reason we invite missionaries in, we go right back to the whole, we have to know what Americans know. Yeah. Well, very few Cherokee. Charles Hicks accepted what Americans knew. So how are we going to acquire this information? We have to acquire from Americans. So who's available? Missionaries. They want to come in. They want to teach come us. In. Yeah. And so here's what we did. We said, all right, you can come in and evangelize the Cherokee, but you have to run a school. Perfect. <laughs> and so well, and that makes that whole mandatory primary education it, thing a lot easier. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sort of outsourcing. Yeah. You have yeah. to run a school. And so and later on, we would have Cherokee schools and we'd have mission schools, but you have to run a school. And here's what you have to teach. You have to teach them everything they know to be an American. Okay. Right. And the other rule we put in place, you're free to evangelize the Cherokee. And Sammy Wooster, who will be a major reason, virtually all the Cherokee will become Christian. If a Cherokee decides to become Christian or not, you have to treat them all the same. Love it. Can't treat anyone differently. Right. If they become a Christian or not, you have to treat everybody the same. You can't show any favoritism to anyone. And those were good rules that served us well for a very long time. It's a very wise men making decisions. Yes. Very wise. Yeah. These men, Hicks. Ridge and Van were, I don't know if any other nation had, maybe the founding of the United States, I guess, had at least three men, the kind of foresight and wisdom and thoughts about, you know, how do we navigate this? How do we do this? It's amazing. But they did. So um, okay, I'm not going to let you read this one. I'm just telling you that right now. Pardon me? I'm not going to let you read this one. <laughs> I'm just telling you that right now. Summarize what happened. I will summarize it because there are things here that Samuel Wooster is one of these missionaries. Okay. And Georgia passes a law, making it illegal for white men to help Cherokee, okay. aimed at the missionaries. Okay. So a number of these missionaries will go, well, we have to follow the law of man and they will leave. Okay. Other missionaries will say, well, God called me to help the Cherokee and no law by the state of Georgia abrogates what God called me to do. And they will stay. Okay. And those who stay, the state of Georgia will arrest and imprison. Samuel Wooster is one of those who stays. 
as a prison. And Samuel Wooster has the gumption to go sue the state of Georgia in federal court, going, I'm being unlawfully imprisoned. Yeah. And his his arguments are Article 1, Article 6, right? Article 1, the Cherokee invited me here. The state of Georgia has no say in it. On tribal land, defined by treaty, under the invitation of the sovereign Cherokee government. Right. Right. The state of Georgia could go pound sand. They don't have jurisdiction. They don't have jurisdiction. Right. Right. And uh, it's really his argument. Okay. He's got to go to the Supreme Court. And to summarize here, (laughs) (laughs) what's going to happen here? And I would encourage people, you go to your favorite search engine, type Worcester v. Georgia, W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R v. Georgia. Yeah, one of those funny English words that I yeah. never... <laughs> yeah, and just, you can read the text of this decision by John Marshall. Okay. And if you care about the Constitution, I would encourage you to read the text, the, the whole text of this decision. But John Marshall is going to decide entirely in favor of Sammy Wooster and the Cherokee Nation and entirely against the state of Georgia and against Indian removal. Okay. He's simply going to go recite the whole, in a much more eloquent way that I've done here, is he's going to recite this 40 years and go, here was the intention of the Constitution. Right. I know I was there, <laughs> right? Here was the intention. <laughs> the benefits of the Supreme Court in those early yeah. days. Yeah. Here was the intentions of the Washington administration to right. invite these people into the family right. as sovereign, distinct people Okay. And he's not saying, and I was there. I know this, right? <laughs> right? I mean, this is really clear, right? What has happened? And what these people are trying to do is unconstitutional. And he's going to make a really great observation here, which is we're going to refer back to maybe in the next episode. Okay. But he's going to say the words treaty and nation are words of our own language selected in our diplomatic and legislative proceedings by ourselves, having each a definite, well-understood meaning. We have applied them to Indians as we have applied them to the other nations of the earth. They are all applied to all. They are applied to all in the same sense. But this decision, John Marshall is going to say Indians have the same natural rights. Yeah. We're back to. We hold these truths to be self-evident, <laughs> right? That, that's exactly what he's going to go back to, right? And this yeah. is what George Washington believed, mm-hmm. right? These people have the same natural rights we do. Let's figure out a way to bring them into the family. right? And John Marshall's just going to echo that with these two decisions. Well, and it seems to me that the entire history of the United States is, it boils down to a question that you posed a couple episodes ago. Do you or don't you believe that sentence in the declaration? Do all men, are are all men created equal or aren't they? Exactly. And John Marshall here is saying, they the are. Constitution says they are, including Indians. Mm-hmm. George Washington believed they were, including Indians. And I believe they are including Indians. Right. Right. This is Supreme Court. Now, famously, Andrew Jackson's reputed to have said after the Wooster decision, John Marshall has made his decision. Now let him enforce it. Now, if he said that or not, it doesn't really matter because the, effect the federal was. government refused to enforce it. Right. And they refused to stop Indian removal. And once that became clear, the state of Georgia, state of Tennessee, state of North Carolina refused to observe that decision either. Mm-hmm. So. Part of the problem here with this, longer term, Supreme Court is not going to wade into Indian law for a very long time after this because they decided this and they were completely ignored. Yeah. Right. But this is what happens, right? Andrew Jackson, Democrats in Congress ignore the Supreme Court decisions and just continue barreling down the same path to Indian removal. So Cherokee ended up in an untenable position. Sure. John Ridge, one of those young men we Mm -hmm. said, is going to go to the Supreme Court. Not as a court, as individual men. After it's clear, Andrew Jackson's not going to abide by this. And he's going to ask them as individuals, including John Marshall, what, what are our options? Sure. If, if you ruled, we sued. We did the whole thing we were supposed to, right? We, we followed the procedure. Exactly. Yeah. We went to the Supreme Court. We won. Right. And, and Andrew Jackson's like, you know, take a hike, buddy. I'm going to do what I want. And so John Ridge went to the Supreme Court as men, not as the court, not not as the right. nation, right? But just off, off the record, right? As individuals, and said, "What are our options?" And uh, they said, "Negotiate the best treaty you can." And they had already negotiated treaties, and those were being ignored. Yes, yes. And they told them, they advised them to to get three things in a treaty: to get a land patent for any future land. Okay. They advised them to get political representation of Washington via treaty, and they advised them to get statehood via treaty. So in 1835, we will sign the Treaty of Neshota, December 29th, 1835. It will be quite the illegal treaty because 
John Ross, who is the chief, will not sign it. It'll be signed by the Ridge Party. Okay. Because they, they, that's a longer story. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and that is still a dividing line within the Cherokee Nation to this day. Is it now? Okay. Yes. But they will sign this treaty. Congress will ratify that treaty. But among the things that the Treaty of New Oshota we received, well, that we were promised, we never received, were a seat in the House of Representatives and a path to statehood. Really? Yes. And the federal government never made any moves. So we send a delegate to this day to Washington, waiting for that delegate to be seated. Seriously? Yes. 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 Huh. Our delegate presently is Miss Teehee, and she is sitting there waiting to be seated. <laughs> and they, they never uh, they never seat the Cherokee delegate. See, there's stories like that that need to be told. You oh, know? it is. I mean, there's stories like that that need to be told. Let's talk about Miss Teehee, and let's talk about why the Democrats who are in control of the entire federal government right now... Will not seat her. Will not see her. <laughs> and she's a Democrat. And she's... Uh, <laughs> but, and yeah, she's, I, she's I mean, part of that marginalized... I mean, you want to talk about marginalized parties, marginalized people? You know, I would say that the Indians... Pretty much qualify. Probably the only party that really qualifies at this point in time. Yeah. But yeah, that's well, this, this is a treaty ratified by Congress. It's unbelievable. Law of the land, promising the Cherokee. If you go, if your land's in the East, there's $5 million. Right. But that's that wasn't the issue. The issue was the seat in the House of Representatives and the path to statehood. Right. That we were promised a treaty that, you know, no 187 chance. years later, we're still waiting. You're very patient. <laughs> we really aren't. <laughs> we, would, we would go to war with the United States one more time over this. Yeah. So again, promises are made, promises not kept. Yeah. And it, it's it illustrates overall. Just what you can summarize all of these treaties with the Indian nations has, because this is just one good example. Right. That these treaties were essentially real estate deals, right? Mm -hmm. In each and every instance, the federal government reneged on payment. Right. That's the short story of all the treaties. It's sad, but true. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. That, that's the whole story here with the treaties. Okay. Right. So, so we sign this treaty. Government does not keep up its end of the bargain. What happens next? Well, we signed the treaty. There has been for some years a group of people known commonly as Cherokee Old Settlers. Sure. I'm sorry. Say that Cherokee one Old Settlers. Okay. Okay. And they are people who go west voluntarily. Before okay. the Trail of Tears. Okay. okay. So I am descended exclusively from Cherokee Old Settlers. Oh. Okay. So my people started showing up in what's now Oklahoma in 1830, and they all went between 1830 and 1834. And my my ancestors were all Ridge Party Cherokee. Okay. Not Ross Party Cherokee. Okay. Because right? there's a division here that's going to last to this day. <laughs> But yeah, and then the Cherokee Old Settlers. And then anybody who hasn't voluntarily left by 1838, General Winfield Scott is going to march down the Cherokee Nation, round them all up, put them in stockades, and there will be the Trail of Tears. So the Trail of Tears generally didn't go how most people think. There were many different detachments that went separately. Okay. The first detachment the federal government took and the death rate was pretty horrific. So we pleaded and convinced them to let us organize our own detachments and lead our own detachments after that. Okay. Yeah. And then we all end up, other than a few stragglers, we will end up in what's now Eastern, Northeastern Oklahoma, where okay. we are today. And those few stragglers will eventually get together and a fellow in North Carolina will recognize there's some justice to their cause and injustice to what happened. And he will buy a chunk of land okay. and he will give it to them. And that is what's now known as the Eastern Band of Cherokee in North Carolina. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, they are another federally recognized tribe. I didn't realize that. Okay. They're much smaller than we are. Sure. The, the Cherokee Nation. But yeah, we cross-reciprocate everything okay. between the two. Okay. Right. So even though legally we are distinct, we recognize each other. Gotcha. So. Okay. Yeah, this is it. And we will be off the whole new history in, in, <laughs> in the new territory. Yeah. But here's here's what really the Democrats thought about Indian removal. So you go back to starting with Lewis and Clark, mm -hmm. Pike, Long, okay, eventually Bonneville, Fremont. Right. Okay. The federal government's going to send these expeditions west. Right. Because 1803, you made the Louisiana Purchase. Right. And they don't really know what they bought. <laughs> they don't know what's out there. So they're right. sending these expeditions out to figure it out. And these expeditions will cross what we call the Great Plains. They called it the Great American Desert. And they're all going to come back and say, Americans are never going to want to live 
on the great American desert, i.e. the great plains. <laughs> that, that's what they're going to say, uh, right? Nobody's ever going to live there. So Democrats, Indian removal, are thinking their head, ah, we're just going to push all these freaking Indians out there where no Americans ever going to live, problem solved. Right. Right. That's the thought process here. Brilliant. So you move the Cherokee to the very edge of the Great Plains, northeastern Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You move the Shawnee, the Delaware, the Osage to Kansas. You move the Creek Nation, Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole into what's now Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. You just start pushing these nations out west under the Great Plains. Right. And go, problem solved in their mind. So, in fact, they still think the problem is solved. In 1851, they're going to sign what's known as the Treaty of 1851. Okay. And there's going to be these nine Indian nations of the northern Great Plains. Federal government's convinced nobody's ever going to live there. Okay. All right. No Americans ever going to live there. So they just divide up the federal government. It's the federal government's idea to do this. They divide up the Northern Great Plains among these nine Indian nations. Okay. Just draw lines on the map. Everybody signs on the dotted line at Fort Laramie. Okay. Yeah. The only thing the government gets in return for that, for giving away the, the Northern Great Plains, is they get unfettered access to the Oregon Trail. So people can go up and down the Oregon Trail without being bothered. Okay. Right. These Indian nations are like, okay, we're cool with that. This is this is reasonable. Yeah. Right? And uh, the lack of foresight that the federal government is just going to lead to disaster here. Right. So. <laughs> As it often does. So, so let's, should we, shall we leave it there? Yeah. Is there, is there a lot between this and the Civil War or? Well, you know. We'll, we'll start that. We'll start the next one. We'll, next we'll episode. We'll start the next one with the Colorado Gold Rush. Okay. That's the next big event here. That's okay. going to change things. Yeah. That's the lack of foresight. Yes. Did. Definitely. So um, basically, I mean, it's just, it's just a story that gets sadder and sadder. It, it, it starts out pretty high and then it just gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. And it, the first 40 years, there's a lot of exceptionally noble behavior by a lot of people. Yeah. There's. Um, the federal government, like I said, George Washington issuing this invitation, federal government going, hey, come join the family. Mm-hmm. Tribes, the Cherokee and other nations going, okay, we'll do this. And we made huge sacrifices. We remade our entire society, sure. right, to become Americans. Right. But we wanted to do that. We signed up for that. We volunteered to do that. Nobody forced us right. to do that, right? It was all voluntary on our part. Right. This is the best path we have. Let's go knock that out of the park. And we did. Yeah. Yeah. You get Democrats and Andrew Jackson go, just kidding. We're, we're taking it all back. We're revoking the invitation. You're not Americans. You'll never be Americans. Right. And we're like, you know, what the hell? So there's, there's such good arbiters of what is what makes an American. It sounds like Andrew Jackson just didn't have a flipping clue. No. What, what any of this meant. What any of this experiment meant. No, no. These are George Washington was somebody who looked at the Indian nations and realize there's a better solution here than just endless war. Right. Right. Let's invite them in. Andrew Jackson saw nothing more. And the Democrats saw nothing more than the immediate land grab. Right. That what could have been. And so everything that's going to happen here between 1730 and the passage of the Indian Removal Act. Mm-hmm. And 60 years later, wounded me. It's hard to believe that was only 60 years. Right. Right. It's because of what Andrew Jackson, the Democrats did. Not surprising. Well, we'll cover that next time and uh, I'll bring tissues this time. <laughs> and uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll continue this story. I hope that you will tune in for part two of the Indian problem, I guess is what we're calling this little series. Um, a brief history of Indian rights with a true expert in, in the subject, um, Keith Nobles. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, well, thank I, you. This I is, love learning about it's this. It's sad, but it's fun. It is. It is. It's fun to learn the lessons that need to be learned. Yes. And, and makes all of the, the sadness not in vain. Uh, well, I think that's it's the, the key. Point. Don't yeah. make other people's horrific errors your horrific errors. Bingo. <laughs> right? There's Bingo. a lesson here. Absolutely. All right. So I hope you'll tune in next time for our next episode of Cowgirls and Indians. Take care. Take care.